generally, South Africa is a violent society. This owes it from the country's history, but then in the present day, um, the societal conditions, economic, socially, and politically, they've sort of culminated into these high levels of violence. Um, I've, I've worked in the crime, justice, security, and violence prevention space at a research level, and you, you get to realize how violent we are. And it, for democracy and a country in South Africa's position, this is, is abnormal. But So this work kind of gets insightful where you want to unpack um, these dynamics and the key questions and also what can effective responses be. But then you get desensitized from how violence is, is a norm here and it, it takes various shapes and forms. It's a very exciting problem that we're trying to solve with this podcast. Africa has an assassination crisis. So we decided that we'd gather together all the greatest minds and experts and researchers and academics and journalists who are looking into this problem and interview them, find their solutions, get to find out what it is that we can do to stop people using assassinations as a way to solving problems, essentially. Welcome to Alibi Killing for Cash. This is a partner podcast, which is brought to our members. Go to alibipodcast.substack.com. If you're a paid member, you'll get the episode straight away. If you're a free subscriber on Substack, that means you'll get it after a week or so. I'm joined today by Stuart Mbunyeli. He works for Good Governance Africa, and he's a junior researcher in their governance delivery and impact program. He wrote a very interesting article about political killings for the Mail and Guardian a little while back. And that's why he's on the show. And how are you doing today? How's your day going? Well, my, my day is, is okay, but I just had to juggle between um, school and, and some work commitments. So I, I yeah, um, it's tricky, but it's all good. It's all good. What are you studying? What are you busy studying? Um, I'm attending a course um, by UCT right now. It's on design thinking. I'm sort of new to that field because I have a politics and security studies background. So I'm just trying to find creative ways of, 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 of learn creativity because the, the work I do is kind of dull. So, yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> is that the work that we're going to be speaking about today? Is that the dull work? No, no, that's the fun part. <laughs> well, not fun, but yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. I tend to use the word fun as well. And you're kind of like, people look at you really strangely in that you've just talked about assassinations or corruption or something like that. Yeah. Okay, well, let, let's just dive into it. I mean, I, I loved your article that you wrote for the Man and Guardian. Can you explain a little bit about that? I think previously, violence was more state-sponsored um, directly. So it was the apartheid government going into communities, assassinating political leaders, Thwarting protests and um, the anti-apartheid liberation movement, but then, interesting enough, uh, it was revealed um, during investigations the TRC Commission that post 1990 or since the late 80s, um, you had more violence um, within communities. Um, so, in terms of numbers, um, that equated to more than what had happened 
um, prior to that. But that not, not negating um, the harsh nature of the apartheid regime, but then um, this was an extension of that, given, if you recall, the inter um, part, inter-party rivalry between the Inkata Freedom Party and how the state played a hand in that, um, in the instability that sort of characterized South Africa just um, before the, the transition. So you had a lot of violent activity at the time and it was heightened um, compared to other periods in the country's history. Okay, and then, and you named some drivers, right? So there's the ethnic and tribal differences that you sort of mentioned, political intolerance, but then also this third force of the apartheid regime, like sort of putting, like you said, the ANC and the IFP against each other. How did they do that? Because I've heard that said before, but I've never had it really explained to me, like how they managed this third force, as you describe it, like how did they do it? In a nutshell, um, it was sponsoring, I'm not sure if I can use the word militias now, but then um, the factions within the IFP, because remember the IFP was a splinter from the ANC, right, historically, but then it had a tribal element next to it in that it was um, largely concentrated within the KZN and had a huge presence within the outskirts of cities in South Africa. So as an extension of its strategy, provided armaments to the IFP, uh, provided training to many of its foot soldiers and um, other resources that led to um, them meting out violence against the ANC. Um, by extension, it had an ethnic character in the sense that they manipulated the fact that you're Zulu and you're a Kosa and um, you're not allowed to live in a particular street or in a particular hostel or particular area. I mean, then those sort of differences were used to, to fuel that violence at the time. How were they able to make it so violent in terms of people's reactions and so deadly? I think the easy proliferation of, of arms, as I mentioned, how um, it was largely state-sponsored by the apartheid government. They sort of diverted arms to these groups, which made them easily accessible and um, right for usage. So that's the nature um, that I think that was able to sort of propel the violence. I'll give you an example. Um, just before the genocide in Rwanda, coincidentally, there was an uptick in the sale of machetes, right? And you'd assume that this is right. a tool people use to cut fields and stuff like that. But then the fact that mach machetes were so wide in circulation um, at the time kind of led to them being used as as, as the weapon of war. Uh, so similarly to the availability of guns, which was driven to these communities just before the start of, before the transition to democracy, them being readily available, unregulated and easily um, accessible. So then when you've got this kind of history, which has been sort of entrenched by a regime that has an ulterior motive, how does that evolve into the present day can you take us through some of the steps that have happened between 1994 and 2022 we had multiple drives where people had to um, surrender arms so we assumed that would lead to a more peaceful state but parallel to that also in the KZN you had uh, the proliferation of these guns that were easily available they proliferated into um, the taxi industry which is also rife with violence and assassinations, but they also proliferated into communities and re remained unregulated and into specific parts of the KZN. Glebeland's hostels in KZN is a hotbed that's known as a place where you can get a gunman for hire. It's documented um, in post-apartheid South Africa where political assassinations have happened, where the remnants of the time became a kaleidoscope of, of, of everything, a mixture of everything. 
um, and how it manifests. So that's how it evolved um, from then to now. But looking also in the in terms of the political cleavages that commonplace in the early 90s, and you had the dominance of the IFP, right, um, which post-94 was concentrated within the KZN. But then in 2007, um, you had an emergence um, in the ANC of, we've historically been led by Kosa leaders, um, previously um, Tabombeki and prior to that, Nelson Mandela, but now you had the emergence of this um, larger-than-life personality in the form of President Jacob Zuma. So that led to the ANC gaining a foothold in the province, but also translating that into the ANC taking um, sort of political power to a great extent from the IFP and its splinter party, the NFP. So the emergence of Jacob Zuma sort of added another dynamic to the nature of violence specifically within um, the, Keynes, the, 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 the KZN. That's fascinating. And you, you mentioned in your article that by today, your violence is really just inside the ANC. It's not in between parties, which I find tragic and kind of fascinating. Is that the sort of change that you're talking about? And is that because Zuma dominated KZN so strongly and so fully that there wasn't really any competition between other parties and the violence had to go for these posts, say like for councillors within the ANC. Yeah, I mean, it's a consequence of the ANC gaining a foothold um, in, the, in the KZN. So now all of these historical ways of behaving sort of took root within the ANC um, because you've got increasing um, competition for positions at a state level where if you hold a position in a council and a municipality and I your competition, basically I see it fit to eliminate you or if you don't belong to my faction or you don't take decisions that are kind to my interests, then I resort to, to these me- means and measures. As I said, it's, it's concentrated within the ANC in areas such as the Etiguini Metro and the Newcastle municipality. That's the, the one way in which it happens um, at a state level. But within the party now, say I'm the leader of a specific branch, branch, or and you the secret, I'm the chairperson, and you the secretary. So if for me to be a decision maker in a party's upcoming conference, whether regionally or provincially or nationally, I know that you favor a specific faction and I favor another faction. Then, given the decision making sway that you have, then it ultimately makes sense for me to put out a hit on you because you won't stand in my way. Um, That's a simplistic way of looking at it. Do you feel that you've become quite desensitized to all of this by working with it? I mean, yeah, you do get desensitized at some point, but these are very intriguing questions. And to get to the root of it all and also carve up responses that can be effective, um, it's kind of exciting. Yeah, I can appreciate that. You sketch out four assassinations in your article um, that have happened quite recently. Do you think that these things happen in waves, like that we have, um, you know, a bunch more assassinations at certain points and then it kind of tapers off and then it comes back? Or do you think that's just the media paying more attention at any one time and that makes it look like there is a bit of an uptick? There's two ways around that. The media obviously paying more attention to it um, makes people more aware of it and also the reporting becomes a whole lot more but then we've had upticks. I mean, on average, since the early 2000s and the start of democracy, political assassinations that were reported as such averaged on about 17 per year. And um, you had this peak in 2017. And now the numbers, um, by, all, for, by all indications, this year will, will eclipse 
um, the peak that happened in 2017. But usually just before ANC has conferences, because it has conferences at a branch level, a regional level, provincial and national, you see upticks in that. And again, it's the competition for the jostling for positions um, within the party that accompany that. But also interesting enough, just before local government elections or even national, not even national because national is far, far removed from the local dynamics. But when you have local government elections, people actually um, kill each other for, 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 for positions because they want um, to be councillors, to be mayors and stuff like that. So the upticks are usually in correlation with major events at a national level like elections than within the party um, just before conferences. And it's not just an ANC trend. It's largely within the ANC, yes, um, but you've had instances, interesting enough, in the DA um, two years back where um, a mayor in one, in, in one Western Cape municipality killed his deputy um, for the position, for a position, came up in my research. I just couldn't document it in the article. And then just before the elections, an EFF councillor um, that was killed in a Pretoria, in a Pretoria ward for um, sort of not being pro-construction uh, deal or something along those lines, as, as, as alleged. But yeah, it takes different shapes and forms. Key events that drive it are usually conferences and elections. Um, but this year's figures have just been skyrocketing uh, because I've, I've been observing trends for the last part, few years um, and sort of monitoring that. But this year, it was quite unusual, the figures. Okay, that's terrifying. Uh, and because also you mentioned that there is kind of a leadership problem with people that are in high end positions keep getting killed. This creates instability in government structures. You know, it's a brain drain, right? You're losing people with credibility and clout and experience to assassinations, which isn't something that I'd ever really thought about. You know, you, it kind of almost overshadows the tragedy of the death. And then you're like, oh, you're also losing you know, um, good leadership experience a lot of the time um, when these people are taken out. Can you elaborate on that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think local government thrives on um, institutional memory, so predictability, accountability, and more often than not, leaders that get assassinated are quite competent and ethical people, unless it's leaders' linkages to crime and taxi violence or drug violence that run parallel to them um, being in political positions. But um, to paint the picture for you, I'll mention sort of one incident that drew me towards the nature of, of, of political violence and political assassinations in, in local government. In 2017, you had the murder of Juan Sindiso uh, Makaka um, in, 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 in the KZN. Um, but to give you a brief context, he was a prominent youth leader um, within the ANC at a national level. Then given the dynamics and the changes um, within the ANC Youth League, he decided to go serve as a councillor um, at his local municipality back in KZN. When he got there, he exposed corruption around the building of a community wall and basically high levels of uh, malfeasance and corruption within that municipality. So he decided to compile a dossier or speak out and blow the whistle on irregularities on, on procurement um, within um, that specific municipality. So now that meant a loss of um, a young person um, who was competent, who was an activist, and who also was a crusader for sort of ethical leadership at that level. So now you have his loss. Um, the question is, who takes his position? Is somebody who is also anti-corruption, who's anti the high levels of graft that persist? So you, f you get these vacuums that occur, um, but 
Beyond that, they result in a loss of institutional memory, as I've mentioned. They result in having people having to have municipalities or government having to have by-elections and stuff like that. So it's that calculation that sort of led me to think about it in a way that, no, this means a loss of of, of good people. Um, But the Sendusuma Gakpa incident kind of drives a point home. I just lastly want to go into the National Elective Conference because you bring it up in your article, and I, I think it's kind of fascinating. Um, for people who don't know, like people that are in other countries perhaps, can you sketch out just briefly what that conference means and its significance in South Africa's sort of political landscape? Because it's a big deal. I mean, it's huge. Yeah, I mean, the ANC stems from branch level. You've got branch leadership, then all the way up to, to national um, leaders. But then how it works is that the branch chooses delegates and chooses uh, a person that would go to conference and be their voting member um, to, to elect a leader, whether as a president, as a secretary, as a treasury, because it's a democratic process, right? But then ultimately it feeds off from the branch. So the party leadership is elected there. And by extension, um, state leadership, um, if the party is able to continue to, to maintain its role um, in, in, in government um, after national or provincial or local elections. So party leadership within party translates into state leadership. So there's huge impetus to, to emerge at a branch level. So usually as a branch, you send a secretary or, or chairperson or both of them who get to be a delegates at conference, and they also get to have a vote in who gets elected at those conferences. So given the, the, the crucial role that party branches have in that there's high stakes there, so a person would want to emerge as the delegate that goes to conference, or a person would want to control the branch proce- the, the branch um, outlook in a sense that, okay, I know that this branch uh, is going to vote for a particular candidate and stuff like that. So... Again, um, given the factional nature of the party, um, branch meetings always tra- often translate into um, scenes of violence. And we have seen in the past few weeks, ANC had to call a lot of uh, branch meetings and provincial conferences, um, notably in Bumalanga um, in the Eastern Cape and parts of KZN, where um, the, these meetings would, uh, would would sort of degenerate into high levels of violence. And they often accompany um, these assassinations because as the contestations within the party um, heat up before the conference, I think this is an adequate explainer of, of the nature of the violence um, in, in, in KZN, the Eastern Cape and, and parts of Mpumalanga that um, sort of descends into um, killings and injuries to people. I have one last question just about that conference. When you say that the ANC is calling other meetings, you know, to discuss the violence, are they kind of scolding them? They're like telling them off and telling them not to use violence on each other? Is that because that's what I'm imagining? Is that what's really happening? It is, but they're not really telling off. I mean, what you can, what can you do as um, a president and of the party? You, you, you have to. Um, shun this violence and as a leader you have to try and control it and mediate Um, but then um, it's a way of sort of stalling in a way Um, and sometimes it's used as a political tool where you can see that okay uh, my people they um, are not emerging or they're not really they don't really have the the ducks in a row so as a way I can use violence to create disorder or as a way I can stop the violence just to bring calm and stability 
Um, but also, um, I think given the alarming rates um, within the Eastern Cape, the party by its nature is very disorganized. So most places aren't ready to go into conferences or they haven't reached consensus on who gets to assume leadership. So I think that's why you had the intervention of um, national leaders and provincial leaders to say that, uh-uh, man, the violence doesn't paint us in a good look. Um, the fact that people are dying and dying for political reasons um, doesn't paint a good picture for our party and our region. So we have to sort of stop the the meetings, then also try and have them maybe at a later stage where um, people have come to the table and decided to resolve issues amicably. Uh, but to a great extent, um, one issue that we, we never engaged on in terms of the causes and the results of the violence is um, how um, policing has been ineffective in SA um, since the dawn of democracy, but more increasingly now, given how it has been to a great extent hollowed out um, by political interventions within the crime, justice and security cluster. Um, you've got crime intelligence, which is in shambles. You've got national intelligence, which is um, also not in a bad state. And that has been highlighted by a number of processes, such as um, the recent um, reviews into um, the July unrest. So um, it's a great, it, it, it might be a political problem that necessitate, necessitates a political solution, but also having effective and accountable law enforcement, um, and that's responsive to um, to these dynamics, would go a long way in sort of mitigating the issue. Brilliant. Stuart, thanks so much for speaking to us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paul. Thanks. Cheers. You've been listening to Alibi, Killing for Cash, our new partner podcast, for Alibi that investigates why these assassinations in Africa are happening at such an alarming rate. We're going to be interviewing experts, journalists, researchers, anyone we can find in order to get to the bottom of this problem. Meanwhile, if you are not a paid member of Alibi, consider doing so. I know it's not a good time. Um, It's never a good time to ask for money. But if you're on a free subscription plan for Alibi, consider upgrading. So go to our Substack, alibipodcast.substack.com and upgrade. We'd really appreciate it. But thanks very much. This has been an exciting chat and um, I look forward to many more. I've been Paul McNally. Thanks and goodbye. Goodbye.